Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What could go right? In a world where we are daily beset with news of what is going wrong, as well as a commentariat and a pundocracy and all of us that are focused relentlessly on all the risks and perils that beset us, at least taking some time to ask the question of what might go right seems important in a world where there is so little attention to it. That doesn't mean looking through the future with Pollyannish views and rose-tinted lenses. It means simply taking the time to think about are we missing something that is going on dynamically and positively that could create change for the better? I have spent a large portion of my adult life thinking about how in a world of noise where the adage of it bleeds, it leads seems to dominate, how do you speak with passionate intensity about not just being calm in the face of risks, but looking for problems in the face of conviction that things are about to go terribly wrong. How do you do that in a way that garners attention and galvanizes energy? That is an immense challenge where trying to solve problems seems to be a cooler thing and trying to address fears and dangers is a hotter thing. And in a world of noise, the heat and the noise always dominates. So what we're going to try to do in these conversations is talk to a series of really compelling people who are not in any way inattentive to the risks, but are thinking every day about what can we do to change them? What can we do to have things go right? I'm speaking today with Alec Ross, who's one of the more innovative, thoughtful, insightful thinkers about the world we're in and the worlds that we are creating. Alec was senior advisor for innovation to Hillary Clinton while she was secretary of state during her first term. He also worked on the digital side of Obama's 2008 campaign for president. And he is the recent author of The Industries of the Future, which is a tour de force guide of how technology is shaping healthcare and the military and the financial industry and even parenting in the world we are in. So Alec, you uh, worked in the State Department, worked on digital diplomacy for Secretary Hillary Clinton for four years. How did you get into that? I mean, where did that come from? How does one develop the background to get into something that no one had ever done before? Sure. So I was a technology entrepreneur. So I worked for eight years trying to figure out how to maximize the potential of technology to help low-income people improve their lives and enter the economic mainstream. So I'd been working in the technology field previously and then, and then helped lead technology and innovation policy for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. That worked, and it worked bluntly at Hillary Clinton's expense. 
So she recruited me to come in and work on innovation policy sort of at her elbow at the State Department. And how is that mandate defined? You know, what did, what did innovation and digital diplomacy mean from your vantage point? Well, it was completely undefined. You know, her proposition to me essentially was, look, come in, make up your own title. You've got a 195-country chessboard, and let's see what good we can do in the world together. So, look, I was not the IT guy at the State Department. I was not, for example, the, the person who came up with the genius idea to uh, – put a server in her basement. That wasn't me. Um, good, my job was, good to know. Yeah. Yeah. My job really was to focus on solving specific foreign policy challenges, like creating an anonymous encrypted uh, text messaging program to be able to identify cartel members in northern Mexico, or trying to figure out how we could wipe out the capability of the Syrian intelligence service to do surgical political assassinations based on knowing where people are on the based on the GPS on their mobile phone. So my focus was really at the intersection of national security uh, and communications technology. And when you think about uh, digital disruption, right, how would we define disruption? It's a word that we use all the time and has become part of the patois of talking about change in technology, but how would you define it? I guess I'd define, having not thought about this at all, I guess I'd define disruption as taking the way something had been done for a long time and changing it. You know, it's, it's, and that can be good or ill. It's a value-neutral definition. And disruption, while for many people it has a negative connotation, if you are from you know, Silicon Valley, it has an inherently positive connotation, it could go either way. Um, but in general, I, I see disruption as anything that changes business as usual. Yeah, and it's obviously one remarked on feature of our current life that much of human history unfolded with moments of punctuated change and disruption followed by long periods of stasis and status quo. And it would appear that we live in a world where the pace of change relative to the pace of status and stasis, that ratio has shifted radically toward rapid change and away from moments of calm and stasis. I mean, did you, was that something you observed and continue to? I think that's right. And, and I think we are in what is effectively the angle of pause of the information age. You know, if you think about our social contract, the first social contract in the West was feudalism where the nobility held the lands for the crown in exchange for military service and taxation. And the peasants lived on the land of the nobility in exchange for, for a percentage of the crops and for fealty. But then there was this shift uh, to industrialization. And, the, and our social contract, the relationship between state, capital, and labor shifted. We had things like the 40-hour work week, pensions, uh, health insurance. Uh, a minimum wage and other things like that. But that didn't happen overnight. People forget there was this period from 1800 to 1840 called the, called the Engels Pause, during which there was this very rapid technological change fueled by industrialization, but the relative well-being of the working classes remained stagnant or got worse. What were the byproducts of this? The byproducts of this were, were intellectual movements like communism. The Communist Manifesto was written in 1848. Uh, the largest wave of 
revolutions in Europe's history began in the 1840s. Uh, and eventually, there was the emergence of a new social contract, which effectively created the social welfare state, the social welfare states that we have in the West today. This largely held for about 150 years. But in the same way in which this shift from a feudal system to an industrial age system uh, took place because of industrialization, I now think we're shifting from an industrial-based economy into an information-based economy. And there have been enormous changes over the last 20 or 30 years. But the relationship between state, capital, and labor are largely the same. We've seen enormous technology-driven change and wealth creation. But if you actually look at the economic measures, the middle class has had relatively stagnant well-being. And so what I do think we're in is we're in a sort of Engels pause of the information age where we need to recalibrate the relationship between state capital and labor, given a once every few hundred years change in the means of production. Yeah, and then it, it's a great point. I and mean, obviously we could debate a lot about in what way or just how much the middle class, you know, looks economically stagnant, but quality of life has improved. You write a lot about oh, yeah. healthcare, or for in other cases, looks relatively stagnant, but has has decreased radically among some. And I'm not sure we're doing a very good job capturing those realities. I think you're right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Are we going to have digital diplomacy going forward? Is it going to be an eight-year period of digital brightness followed by a four- to eight-year period of digital wilderness? Or do you think some of the changes that were put in place in the government and in how the United States communicates with the world, are those embedded enough within how we're conducting ourselves that it's going to keep going? Yeah, I think there's a much more foundational question here, which is what kind of diplomacy are we going to have at all? You know, it's interesting, Donald Trump appointed someone who's actually a pretty broad-shouldered, strong, worldly Secretary of State in Rex Tillerson, uh, but he sent, sort of sent him to the kids' room. I mean, Rex Tillerson, you know, taking 21st century statecraft, taking the complexity of power structures and the exercise of power in a network world out of it for a minute— as of right now, the 60,000 people who work at the State Department, it's not clear what role they have in Donald Trump's foreign policy at all right now. So before we even get to 21st century statecraft, uh, 21st uh, digital diplomacy, much bigger question is, is 
is this White House going to exercise its foreign policy at all through diplomacy, or is it going to be entirely through tweets, the White House and the Defense Department? Um, but to respond to your question more directly about you know, the degree to which the State Department will or will not, this administration will or will not be sophisticated about digital diplomacy, I think it comes down to two things. Number one, does Donald Trump's boss, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, does he provide, does Putin and do the Russians provide any staffing to the Trump White House to teach them how to use these tools as effectively as they were used during the presidential campaign to help elect Donald Trump? So that's thing one. Um, and then thing two is, does Trump manage to attract people to government who are actually sophisticated in the use of digital tools? So, you know, the, the person who was just brought in to be the White House chief information officer, uh, alas, had to leave. He was walked out by security because he didn't pass a security clearance. Right. He was one of the six who were asked to leave the White House almost as quickly as they were asked to come to the White House. That's right. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a question, too, about for all of the love between Peter Thiel and Donald Trump, does is there any affinity for Donald Trump among people who are really smart about how to use digital tools? That's an open question. I imagine he'll be able to draw some talent in. So far, he hasn't. Although it's interesting to push back on that, right? You were an early proponent of the use of these new media digital tools as part of a way of communicating, you could certainly say for both Trump and for Putin that they have been masterful at using those tools to communicate. So the question is, could those be used more constructively? But certainly Trump tweets and, and Putin's various manipulations of social media have been, well, they've certainly been effective, right? Well, they have, but your question was more narrowly focused on diplomacy. So I have... You know, look, I've given Trump an enormous amount of credit uh, for, you know, how smart he's been he's been about using Twitter specifically. You know, he's like a guy throwing a tennis ball to a golden retriever. You know, the golden retriever runs where the master throws the ball. And that's sort of been Trump with the public. And then, you know, every now and then he pretends to throw the ball and he doesn't. And the dog runs around like an idiot. Um, and that's been the public. But the question is, you know, that's that's fine for electioneering and that and, you know, hey, maybe it gets them reelected. But the question is, within the complexity of the conduct of America's formal interactions with 195 sovereign nation states and the seven billion people in the world who aren't Americans, how does it work with them? And I can't point to any examples of where that's been successful. Um and it may be, you know, maybe the mojo uh, and the great instincts that Donald Trump and his, his gang demonstrated to the campaign does eventually migrate into foreign policy. But we haven't seen it yet. I mean, all they've been able to do so far is take longstanding relationships and alliances that we have and fray them. Hmm. In your book, In Industries of the Future, you, you juxtapose the decline of traditional jobs and communities in West Virginia, both because of the coal mining industry, but also because of changes in manufacturing, as a negative, right? A disruption that has been extremely challenging for the communities you grew up in versus the disruptions and the changes caused by technology for 
India. Obviously, it's a big country, and generalizing about India is probably as dangerous as generalizing about the United States. But is there some formula that we can figure out where we can identify when disruption is likely to be perceived as destructive versus where disruption and change is likely to be perceived as constructive? Well, that's a great question. And what's interesting about that is that at the same time that my native West Virginia's economic descent really hit hard as I was growing up in the 1970s, 1980s, and certainly pretty consistently since then, there were other states in the United States which had economic and social characteristics very much like my native West Virginia. I'm thinking about the Carolinas, for example. North Carolina and South Carolina in the 1970s and 1980s, the core of those economies were tobacco and textiles. Uh, the difference between the Carolinas and West Virginia is where West Virginia sort of clung to its industrial past and did not adapt. The Carolinas did make very bold moves as matters of public policy and through private sector leadership, pivoting from their economic past rooted in tobacco and textiles into knowledge-based industries and services. And so today, South Carolina is really as advanced, is as sophisticated and advanced manufacturing center as any place in the world. Uh, this is where, you know, the BMWs and others congregate to do 21st century manufacturing. Similarly, North Carolina, you know, the, you know, much of North Carolina economically looks a lot more like Massachusetts or Northern California than the Old South. And so, at the, at the core of all of this is the question of adaptation. If change is coming and change is coming fast, what is your political will? What is your, what is your, your willingness and ability to pivot to the future? And, you know, there are big countries abroad that as, as globalization and technological change have grown in, in, in speed and force have adapted well and those that haven't. And similarly, Within the United States, it's a very mixed story economically. There are parts of the country, like West Virginia, that have done very poorly, and there are places that have adapted and have really made the most of these changes and where technological change has been disruptive for the good. Do you think there's any formula for that, too? I mean, it's such a fascinating point you raise about, look, these the Carolinas had many of the same characteristics, but in some respects have managed to generate positive change out of this, uh, whereas West Virginia, and obviously you're from West Virginia, J.D. Vance's, I think he was from the same kind of basic... From the other side of the river in Ohio. Other side of the river, but, you know, he's writing about a similar culture of non-adaptation yeah. and hillbilly elegy. Is there some, I don't know, secret formula? I'm, I'm not trying to reduce it to something that simple, but do, can you tell, are there, are there cultural elements that that could, in the future be helped forward? Like if you could replay the tape, could you reposition West Virginia such that it would have been on the right side of an adaptation curve? Yes. Yeah. So I don't think there's a formula, but I do think that there's some common characteristics. And one goes to K-12 education. Uh, the, the outputs of our, of our public education system have to map to the inputs of private sector hiring. And so, you know, if you're to think about this internationally, many of the states and societies that have done the best over the last 10 to 15 years, you know, from Singapore to Finland to myriad others, 
have been those that have had the political will to make changes to their K-12 curriculum and to the, the nature of education delivery, anticipating what future economic systems are going to look like. Uh, and so K-12 education is important. Secondly is the role of government facilitating economic growth. So going back to the transition from tobacco and textiles in the Carolinas, the state leadership of both of those states, which began Democratic in North Carolina under Jim Hunt and in South Carolina under both Democrats and Republicans, was they had a willingness to put a thumb on the scale and stop subsidizing yesterday's industries. Say, you know what? Tobacco and textiles have had a good run. We're done overly supporting those industries. We're going to really put a thumb on the scale to advantage the industries of the future. And in West Virginia, they did the opposite of that. They said, you know what? We're going to we're going to hold out for coal and just hope that coal continues to fuel the world. Similarly, in the community where J.D. Vance grew up, they held on to manual, non-advanced manufacturing and just hoped that those good union wage jobs would sustain the regional economy. So it really, at the end of the day, you have to have an almost ruthless, cold-blooded willingness to allocate financial resources in a way that's oriented toward the future at the expense of the present and recent past. And you've got to take this very difficult to change thing called our kindergarten through 12 education, public education system and make pivots so that the young people coming out of those systems are better prepared for where the job growth will be. Um, I want to turn to a couple of other things which you've, you've talked about, one of which is the promise of the financial industry changing based on technology and some disruption there and how it might um, become much more a source of revitalization by providing sort of capital and credit to wide swaths of the country that have currently not as had as much access to it, either through the traditional banking system or not. It's fascinating. You know, the likes of me and you, we take for granted that because we are in the economic mainstream and that we access capital and credit credit markets that, you know, everybody else in the country and the world does. But the very simple fact of the matter is that a shockingly high percentage of Americans and certainly of global citizens work outside of mainstream capital and credit markets, which are spectacularly inefficient. And um, I do think that being able to commodify financial tools and services in ever more accessible way and just taking waste out of some of the these financial systems can only only bodes well for the world. You know, I, I particularly think about this as it relates to help as, as, as I think about frontier markets becoming developing markets and developing markets becoming developed markets. You know, one of the principal things that keep low-income markets globally from being more attractive for investment is just the funkiness, just the, just the remarkable inefficiency that comes with asset settlements, that comes with moving, that comes with moving property and moving capital around the globe. And one of the very positive benefits of digitization and of some of the new tools being developed leveraging blockchain technology is it's making it less funky 
to work in what are historically very difficult developing world or frontier world markets. And I think that this is only for the good. And I'm I'm totally with you on that. And I think and you, you know, you've talked about and you've met these people like Mo Ibrahim and the changes in Kenya with M-Pesa and the use of mobile payments as being a incredibly sort of unlocking of human capital. I've thought about a lot this a lot in the United States though. Places that have really strong embedded financial players, banks where a lot of the population is banked even though as we know there's you know, a good 15 to 20 percent, maybe not 20, but there's a a considerable portion of the United States that's unbanked or has not been permitted to enter into the banking system. How do you deal with that disruption where you have such embedded players? How does it play out in the United States, particularly with a a regulatory framework? And I I don't want to sound Trumpian here, but a regulatory framework that, that can stifle the entrance of new participants. Well, you anticipated my remarks. The regulatory environment presents an enormous headwind in the United States for startups, for a non-incumbent player to say, you know what, I have a new idea for how to do banking, or I have a new idea for you know, how to make investing more accessible to more people. You know, the, the, the regulatory barriers to being able to do that are substantial. You know, you, in, to start a company in most respects, what you need is a great idea, uh, some increasingly low-cost technology, and the ability to, to build out your idea. Uh, to build something in the financial services space, you need an army of lawyers. And so, you know, the United States is just a terrible place to build companies in the financial technology space, in, in large part because of regulation. And so what I imagine is going to happen is I think a lot of this is going to happen outside of the United States, and I already see it happening. You know, I you know, see an Estonian company like TransferWise uh, doing a better job of figuring out how to take the friction out of wire transfers than any American company. You know, the most interesting things being done in terms of mobile payments are really not being done by American companies. And part of it is, is if you're a 25 year old and you've got a whiz bang idea, uh, we place a series of disincentives in front of you to say, you know what, your big idea in banking or in financial services, come up with a new idea because here are all the things that we're going to do to make it really difficult for your idea to become a viable company. What's interesting to me is that some of the incumbent companies are actually working very hard themselves to figure out how they can take some of this, let's use the overused word, disruption. You know, how can they figure out how either through M&A, through IP acquisition of another sort, or through just building things internally, they interestingly, I think, are trying to figure out themselves how they can innovate rather than getting their lunch eaten by a startup. And do you see... That changing, I mean, could that be a uh, a positive of the touted deregulatory environment of the next few years under a Trump administration? I mean, we'll see. You know, I, the problem is, I think that Trump is, while while some of the deregulation may be good in most respects, the, they're deregulating the wrong things. Um, uh, you know, 
I think that most of what will or won't happen uh, will not be a function of what happens in Washington bluntly. And most of these banks are are truly global anyway. Uh, So they're going to – they can create capital structures anywhere in the world to build the kinds of products and tools that that they think are ultimately going to deliver the most shareholder value. So I think that you know while we might see stock prices increase uh, in the banking sector just because the Trump administration is taking a lot of regulation and friction out you know I wouldn't necessarily correlate that to increased innovation So wondering where you kind of see the the bright spots of the future. I mean, I love, by the way, in your book, you talk about your most important job has not been dealing with innovation and technology and digital diplomacy, but it's figuring out how to be a father in today's era or how to be a parent, I suppose, is, is more accurate. And, uh, you know, what do you think about that? Is it, 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 I have two kids and I wonder if being a parent has changed in any fundamental fashion. I mean, complaining about kids' screen time sounds awfully lot like, you know, parents in the 1970s complaining about their kids listening to Led Zeppelin and parents in the 1930s complaining about too much radio and on and on back through human history, right? You know, when my parents helped me get into college, um, the assumption was that if I went to a good college and I came out with a degree that, you know what, you could pretty much guarantee three or four decades of steady employment and steadily increasing well-being. Uh, I think that was a correct assumption, and that's been a, an assum- a correct assumption in the United States since the 1930s. The, the tricky thing today is that we have to we have to program our kids for a, a few different things, and you know, social and emotional well-being is you know remains first and foremost. You know, are, are are the children we're raising? good people, you know, in a world of zeros and ones, that remains more important than anything else. But it's interesting, you know, I think that, you know, when our kids enter the the workforce and, you know, instead of working in one industry and maybe two or three employers, three or four employers, but over the course of a three or four decade long uh, future of employment, working in seven or eight different industries and having 15 or 20 different jobs, it seems like like we do have to be teaching our kids some different things as it, re- as they re- as it relates to resilience, as it relates to a willingness to be a lifelong learner. Um, you know, I, I think that unlike, you know, our parents who sent us to, to college when we were 18 and when we were 21 or 22 sort of declared us successes, I think that that you know, as parents today, we're gonna we're gonna have to be hopeful that the 21 or 22 year olds who our children will become uh, are prepared to you know commit to another three or four decades of continual learning, uh, given the mobility that I think is almost inevitable in in the future workforce. But you're not jumping on to the Peter Thiel bandwagon of a four-year college education is increasingly irrelevant in a fast-changing world where you have to be adaptable and nimble? Exact, a, a, exact opposite. I actually think that Peter Thiel's Thiel Fellowship is probably the single most stupid 
philanthropic endeavor in the history of philanthropy. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's, I think that more so than ever, young people need a very strong interdisciplinary foundation. Um, you know, I think that the idea that you can, that a 19 year old is somehow prepared to, um, you know, make it for the next five decades and sort of learn along the way, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg, forget about it. Um, I actually think that interdisciplinary learning and having a really strong foundation uh, across disciplines is more important now than ever. And another, like, let me just be completely undiplomatic about it. When I'm in a boardroom or I'm in the White House situation room, when I'm, you know, with people who have been most successful, uh, you know what? Those people tend to have gone to good colleges and universities. It's very rarely the case that somebody in the boardroom, that somebody in the White House situation room isn't there without fairly substantial academic credentials. Mm. And I would remind, you know, the Peter Thiels of this world that, you know what? He went to Stanford Law School. He has sort of the, the classic and quintessential academic credential of the year 2017. So I just don't see it, and I just don't buy it. So if you were going to replay your own tape and think about where you were going to start or focus your energies most constructively in today's era, would you focus on the federal government, or would you look more toward the states and toward the local? I, I think a lot of good can be done in both places. You know, I am... You know, my vision is blurred right now by the Trump presidency. You know, I don't, you know, in a Trump presidency, I am not at all optimistic about what positive can come out of Washington. And sadly, I think, you know, even during eight years of the Obama presidency, I think that the kind of success that he might have had was significantly dialed back by the almost spear chucking tribalism in Washington between Democrats and Republicans. It's a, it's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly, uh, I don't know, infantile environment right now. Um, where it's, if you're a Democrat, you're not allowed to agree with a Republican on anything. And if you're a Republican, you're not allowed to agree with a Democrat on it, on anything. So in the face of that, I think that the, the most good can be done at the state and local level. And given the dysfunction in Washington, I think that the adults outside of Washington need to show the children in Washington how we can govern in a way that increases well-being uh, across society. Alec Ross, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.